Welcome to the latest episode of A Smart Financial Plan, where we interview leading financial planning researchers on their research and learn how to apply their findings and best practices to our own financial planning practices. Today, I'm super excited because I had the rare opportunity to interview not one, not two, but three of the top financial planning researchers in the field. Dr. Derek Tharp with the University of Southern Maine, Dr. Megan Lertz with Columbia University, University of Maryland, and Kansas State University, and Dr. Kate Mielitz of Oklahoma State. All three conducted research on the pay gap for financial planners, which is a highly controversial topic. However, they explained their methods for the research, their findings, and I think most importantly, gave us tools to use their research to ensure that compensation is more equitable for practitioners and tools for firms to use when deciding how to compensate their teams. I think this is a really important subject for financial planners to understand, and I think you'll have a lot of great takeaways, whether you're a student, a planner, or a firm owner. Enjoy. Thank you, uh, Dr. Mielitz, Dr. Tharp, Dr. Lertz, for, for joining us here on the podcast today. Uh, two of you have been here before, so Dr. Mielitz, I'm going to give you the honors of uh, sharing a little bit about yourself, uh, your credentials, your, your current role, where, where you're working, and uh, all that good stuff. Well, thank you, Daniel, for having us. I really appreciate it, and it's fun to be here. My name is Kate Mielitz. I'm an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University in the Family Financial Planning Program, and I am an accredited financial counselor. My area of expertise is helping people develop their financial foundations and in the classroom really investigating uh, what it means to attack money from different perspectives. And maybe I shouldn't say attack, I should say approach, uh, but either way, uh, understanding how uh, people from different walks of life uh, use and interpret money. Gotcha. Uh, and Dr. Tharp, you've been here before, but if you wouldn't mind sharing briefly about yourself. Yep. I'm an assistant professor of finance at University of Southern Maine. Um, also work in a few other capacities. I work as a financial advisor, have my own firm, uh, Conscious Capital, and then work as a lead re researcher at kids.com, which is the organization that the study today uh, was conducted through. All right. And Dr. Lertz? Uh, I'm Megan, <laughs> and um, I, uh, I work with Dr. Derek Tharp at Kitsis, um, and I work or have worked in many capacities on different research projects with Dr. Kate Mielitz. Um, I am a professor at Kansas State University in the um, Advanced Financial Planner track. I am a professor at Columbia, lecturer, let me, let me clarify, lecturer at Columbia University. I teach there. Um, client psychology course, and I teach undergraduates uh, at the University of Maryland uh, within the CFP program there. So you're all just a little bit busy. A little bit, <laughs> but we find time to do research. There you go. Well, speaking of research, uh, can you tell me what this research was called and just succinctly, what was it about? I can answer that one. That was easy. <laughs> Um, so we did, we did a research paper looking at um, the gap, you know, in, in, or if there is a gap. We were curious to know, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will report things like there's a 40% wage gap uh, in the financial industry. And um, Derek, uh, Dr. Derek Tharp had done some previous look at just what it meant to like narrow that, you know, so it's, one thing to say, we have that in our financial industry. It's another thing to say, okay, among CFPs that work in kind of this particular way, what is really the gap there? Because there is existing literature in other areas 
that shows that sometimes that gap is much, much smaller. So we were curious about investigating, investigating that. We wanted to know, you know, is there a difference uh, or gender pay gap, you know, that exists for financial planners? Um, and in order to do that, um, we did, we surveyed financial planners through the Kitsis website. Um, and for those of you that don't know the Kitsis website, um, we publish a lot of long form blogs. Our blogs are nearly journaled articles in and of themselves. Um, some are between five and 6,000 words. And so typically the people that are coming to our website are a little bit different than even, um, even more particular or more nuanced, oftentimes more educated. Um, and so they are a particular group, but they are a group that's very similar. And so we were using uh, data that we collected there. We had uh, seven, 700 something advisors, 500 and some were men uh, and the remaining were women. And we were uh, investigating, you know, is, is, there, is there a gap? Um, and I'm sure my colleagues can add to that uh, if that wasn't quite what you wanted. I think one of the neat things about this, and yes, I'm on it, so yes, I'm, I'm naturally biased, but one of the things, and we identify this, we, we specifically speak to it at the beginning, is that a lot of times when we're talking about pay gaps, the pay gap that's that gets reported in, in the media, that gets reported, uh, whether it's news media or, or in print, doesn't always account for some of the limitations in that data. And so we've got to acknowledge some of these things, and we did that. We you know, couldn't do it on a national scale, but we took that first step to say, hey, listen, here's some things that are not always uh, accounted for in this pay gap type of study, and let's talk about that. One of the reasons that we dug into this, and one of the things that, that we talked about at the very beginning of the article, is that there are often limitations to the data that is, that is shared in the news media, whether in print or on television, about the information that's missing from explaining the pay gap. And so we wanted to take this first look at it. You know, it's not a nationally representative survey, but it is a start and it is a start to saying, hey, listen, let's consider some of these other contextual factors in understanding this pay gap and see what it tells us. Sure. So just out of curiosity, then when when you, you know, when you looked at this particular idea and you're looking at your your sample group, right, you, you've got, uh, you know, a, a lot of financial planners, people who, who we might charitably uh, describe as maybe more financial planning nerds uh, who are interested in, in contributing to research and financial planning and how that gets done. Um, you know, did you going into that? Did you think that that might be uh, kind of a maybe a more optimistic group or we we're just going to sort of by default, maybe see better Better, better data in a group like that? Or did you really think it was going to be, uh, or has your experience shown you that it was going to be more cross-sectional across the, the broader industry and that you were going to have kind of a, a healthy, diverse uh, group of, of sort of participants? I, I can jump in on that one. Okay. One um, consideration, at least, I, I didn't really have any strong thoughts on what we would find. I, I really had no idea uh, going into this project, but um, one element that our, our sample skews a little bit more towards people who are in uh, actual kind of career tracks in financial planning. So they might be on a truly salary basis um, at some point in their career. And that's very different than like, you know, in a wirehouse or a broker dealer environment where 
Uh, we just don't have as much representation and everything is so much driven by an eat what you kill kind of model. It's all revenue production. And one thing that could come up, uh, you know, the more you, you are in that salary kind of subjective pay setting environment, the more potential there is actually for kind of that preferential treatment in terms of maybe not paying people equally. Um, and so that was one consideration, but I didn't necessarily have a strong thought of how, if at all, we would see that um, actually kind of manifest in the results. But one thing that's unique about our sample, um, and I think as the industry continues to evolve in that direction of having actual kind of career paths and entry roles that aren't purely sales focused, um, that's going to be an added challenge or a difference uh, that could come up um, relative to where we're at today. Sure. Well, Dr. Lurth, you mentioned that there was that Dr. Tharp had kind of done some prior research on on kind of how to approach the problem of, of a pay gap. Um, has there been any real prior research specific to financial planners in the past, or has it been more those um, kind of big, big scale, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics type numbers? Yeah, it's, it's been predominantly what's been out there has been the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers um, and, and things like that, which missed the nuance and and Dr. Tharp had spent some time just kind of looking at, well, looking at academic research that's being done. Um, specifically, we used what's called the Blender Oaxaca model. Um, and that model in particular is known for its ability to compare the means of the groups. And so that's what we were doing, you know, trying to understand what was going on. Um, and, and it's also important to note that uh, a common misconception of like one of the reasons why we received a lot of media attention, I'll uh, we'll say it like that for what it was that we did, um, is there's a misconception about, about what we did or what it means. And so finding a gender, uh, a gender pay gap or not finding a gender pay gap um, the sort of natural inclination or the natural place that people go is, okay, well, then there must be discrimination. Or if we don't find a, a gap, then you're saying that there is no discrimination. Whereas what we were trying to do with using specifically the Blender Oaxaca model was to control four factors like, um, as, as Derek mentioned, you know, where are Dr. Tharp mentioned, you know, where are they working? Um, how, what is their desire? We asked about um, what was important to them. You know, was it money? Was it their leisure time? Uh, we, so we had psychological sort of motivating factors for work that we considered. Uh, and we had the model in which they were working. We had their uh, just education and, and different things that would certainly speak to the question of, is there equal work for equal pay? We can't, we couldn't put discrimination measures um, into, you know, like we can't bring the glass ceiling uh, into this particular type of model. So what we found was that there um, wasn't a statistically significant gap. So in, and we would say, uh, or in, you know, in more general terms, we would say that, you know, that, that there doesn't seem to be a gap um, or that the gap is very, very narrow. Um, and people are m more often than not, you know, sort of apples to apples comparison, which is again, is what we were trying to do, you know, really looking at financial advisors with very similar backgrounds and 
trying to control for the fact that if it's just male or if it's just female, um, was that the issue? And, and the gender issue was not the issue. You know, people maybe wanted to work less or they wanted to work more or they were very concerned, you know, with like that the production of revenue or being in control of more revenue, um, this led to more pay. And so, but, but that wasn't necessarily related to gender in a discriminatory way, one way uh, or the other. And so it's, it's important to say that we can't measure discrimination uh, of, of certain types within this, with what we did, but um, we were trying to our best to be able to compare apples to apples. And in doing so, um, we found that, you know, the red ones were just as good as the green ones. And so that's, that's good. Um, and, uh, and, and we also saw things like, you know, there's, there's more than sort of one way to interpret that, I guess, that, you know, oftentimes if people were psychologically motivated or uh, uh, this had the motivation for more money, they were able to make it. You know, if they were uh, in charge of more revenue, they were usually making more money. Um, and so these would all point to the conclusion or point to a conclusion that, you know, all, all else being equal, um, if your goals are money, you know, you can, you can make it within financial planning, um, regardless of being male or female. And so, I mean, I'm sure Derek and, and Dr. Mealitz or Kate, Derek, I'm used to calling them Kate and Derek. So <laughs> I respect their titles, but I have it too. <laughs> Um, and so uh, I'm sure they have additional comments as that on that as well. I'll just pop in really quick. I actually use this article in one of my classes when we're talking about differences in how men and women use money as well as historically uh, treatment of women versus men uh, within the workforce and how that has changed over time. I use this article as a way to say, hey, listen, with this small sample, and again, not nationally representative, but with this small, rather similar sample, this is what we're seeing. And it is a push into saying we need to do more. We need to investigate this um, at a deeper level so that we truly do understand that throughout the financial planning field, what does this look like? And you know, people choose different walks of life and different careers, not only because of things that they love to do, but also because uh, there's this perception of one thing is gonna give me a little bit more flexibility, or one thing is gonna give me more of an opportunity to go out and, and, and get more hours and do more things. Well, we've got to take some of that, that kind of that work-life balance into consideration when we're talking about some of these differences. And we started doing that. And as Megan said, you know, when it came down to gender itself, there wasn't. Now, were there differences uh, to a statistically significant amount based on work preferences for work-life balance? Sure. But a lot of times when we're talking about the, the gender pay gap, we are talking at the surface. And I think it is important to recognize that in many cases, there is still a gender pay gap. And we're not saying it doesn't exist at all. We're just saying in this sample for this situation, based on the additional variables that we were able to include and consider, gender was not the defining factor of a pay gap. Dr. Tharp, it looks like you also had a thought you wanted to share there. 
Yeah, I just wanted to um, also add uh, in particular to comment that um, Dr. Lertz was making in terms of one particular type of discrimination that we can't address at all in a study like this. Um, a good paper is Madden uh, 2012. It's uh, She looks at what she called uh, performance support bias, and that actually occurred in a brokerage environment. So again, very relevant kind of uh, context. And what they found was that, you know, if you were doing an analysis like we did, you would come away from that study and you wouldn't necessarily see a pay gap. Um, but because we include factors like revenue um, as a productivity measure that we're controlling for, what she found in that case was there wasn't a difference um, in productivity, but men and women in that environment weren't given an equal opportunity. So when there was orphaned accounts and somebody left um, a firm and those accounts were being reassigned, managers weren't reassigning those accounts um, equally across genders. So it looked like there was some preference um, in that selection. And then because of that, somebody might come in and look at it and say, well, look, the, the male advisors in the office are more productive in terms of revenue than the female advisors. And that's what drove the gap. Uh, but you totally miss the point if you don't realize, or if you, you know, gloss over the fact that perhaps men and women weren't given equal opportunity in that environment. Um, so, so that's the type of, um, you know, discrimination uh, that, that we can't speak to. We're only looking at factors like hours worked, uh, personal preferences in terms of um, different types of income, uh, credentials, revenue produced, all these different factors. Do we see a gender pay gap? And the answer there was no, not in this particular sample, but we can't speak to all the other factors that could influence, in particular, that revenue production number uh, that may be um, not equal uh, in terms of uh, opportunity. Sure. So two, two things I sort of want to, to look at or think about here. Uh, Dr. Mielitz, you, you sort of uh, already invoked the, the next question I'd, I'd ask, which is where do we go from here, right? What do we, what do we look at or what do we research? Uh, you know, knowing that what we know now, what do we need to know or what do we need to take a more to kind of deep dive look at? I think one of the things that is very, very important and we do it a lot in research is we're always turning to what was done before. <laughs> And sometimes you have to look deep because maybe something was done, you know, in the distant, distant, uh, distant past, which may be something like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago in academia. But I mean, sometimes even farther back like that, because maybe something was done and then it was dropped. We don't have to do a deep dive necessarily there, but just having that familiarity and looking to what and being brave enough to ask those questions. Okay, what else do we need to look at? What else, what other angle could we consider. And then digging into something like the paper that we wrote, uh, okay, what, where, where do you as, a, as another researcher or, or as somebody out in the field see something different? And a repeat, a test and a retest is always very, very important. And so it's really checking and then rechecking and then you can add on to it when necessary. Derek, uh, Dr. Tharp, I don't know if you want to talk about, but um, we did, Derek, Derek and I did work on a, a follow-up study, uh, if you will, uh, with a, another researcher, actually, that's a colleague uh, of Dr. Derek Tharp, 
uh, his university, Dr. Elizabeth Parks Stam. Um, and we looked at family characteristics and uh, it was, it, that was enlightening as well. So like we were trying to understand um, family characteristics, like what does marriage do? What do children do um, in terms of its impact on the incomes of male and female financial advisors? Um, Derek, do you want to talk a little bit about that one or I can, I made some, sure. I made some notes to myself, but Derek, Derek led a lot of that paper. So. Yeah. And that, that was a case where we were able to replicate a very similar pay gap analysis, except we didn't have what we ended up finding in this study was, you know, there's about a 19% gap between men and women. If you didn't adjust for other factors, once we adjusted for those other factors, uh, then it fell to less than a 2% gap. And that's where it wasn't statistically significant. Um, we found a similar kind of um, overall gap, but because we didn't have some of the the factors that contributed most to explaining that gap in terms of psychological motivation and um, some other factors, we were only able to explain a smaller percentage in that follow-up study. So I'm not sure what, you know, an ideal, an ideal situation would have been trying to replicate our study with the same measures with a different set of advisors entirely. Um, uh, so, so it's kind of hard to say, you know, how much of that outcome should have been expected versus not, but um, we do, we will have opportunities to continue to dig into the topic and look into it further. And uh, that particular paper is still undergoing peer review. So um, we'll see where, where that ends up uh, ultimately. But the, uh, the takeaway there was that we did see differences um, between men and women also related to the uh, family characteristics. So uh, we did see a, a pay gap um, differences uh, when you even looked at something like having a stay-at-home spouse, where we saw men uh, seem to earn a premium, whereas women did not um, earn that premium. So just adding more nuance to it, exploring that. Uh, but then I also, to kind of address the, the initial question too, I think we really we can keep doing these types of pay gap analyses and they might continue to uncover some things and, that, and that's important. But I also think it's really important to have just, you know, entirely different type of research uh, that's going on that gets at all these other factors that we can't, we can't even begin to speak to. Um, so, you know, recruitment, uh, treatment of managers, particularly of when people are in these more salary driven roles where uh, preferential treatment could be introduced more than kind of an, an eat what you kill type environment. Um, so that's going to take totally different methods, totally different survey designs. I mean, it's just all completely different. Um, so I think that's, that's something I want to see a lot of too, is, um, you know, not, not just looking at the pay gap dimension, but broadening out and looking at other considerations as well. So the, the sort of normal wrap-up question I'd ask here is, you know, if I'm a financial planning practitioner today or a student getting into planning, uh, what do I do with these findings? What do I do with this research? How do I apply it? Um, but you haven't researched a, a planning topic, you know, a retirement uh, income question or something like here, that. So th this could certainly take a little while, but I, I really do want to open up the floor. Um, you know, what, what do we as a profession or as an industry do with the knowledge that, you know, at least most things considered based on this sample group, um, you know, that we, we have some level of pay equity 
Um, or, or maybe maybe do we not know that well enough to be certain of that? But if I'm a, a student or a firm owner or a practitioner, um, what do you think happens in terms of compensation around kind of the, the pay gap and what can we do proactively to kind of help with controls around uh, you know, having to take things like maternity leave or uh, the, you know, the family dynamics that you, you just discussed? Um, we, we can certainly take a lot of time on this, but I'm, I'm really curious to get your thoughts as people who've looked kind of under the hood uh, at this. You know, what, what can we do with this knowledge? I think the first thing that we can do, um, first and foremost, is just have hope for the future of the profession. A lot of times, um, research like this that gets pushback, uh, research that says that you know something doesn't exist um, or doesn't exist at a statistically significant level, gets a bad rap. Uh, we're not saying that life is perfect. We're saying with this sample. But I think this study shows that there is hope and there is attention uh, being paid to the factors that influence the pay gap. And I think that this is a terrific first step forward. Yeah, I think I, to add on in a similar, similar kind of manner, I, one thing that we see that I think, I mean, we always wanna, you know, as we're doing the study, we're just trying to empirically measure and figure out what we see. But um, in the media, one thing that was very common prior to our study, I actually, uh, maybe it's still out there, but I haven't seen one published since our study, so maybe that's a, a positive step, was every year a study would come out talking about how terrible um, the pay gap is among financial advisors because they were just doing the simple Bureau of Labor Statistics comparison. And one thing that, you know, is particularly challenging there is that, um, you know, the, how they define financial advisor is very broad. Um, and it includes people that may just have a securities license, but they're really working in more of a back office support type role. And we wouldn't expect those, um, somebody working as a lead advisor and somebody working in a support role to be earning the, the same thing. So um, I think just the, the message, and again, we, we wanna continue to verify, maybe other studies will contradict ours in the future and that'd be important to know as well. But I, I do see an optimistic kind of message in ours in terms of, for women who want to get into the field, um, we don't see that based on this you know, study with all, all limitations noted, um, we don't see tremendous um, uh, uh, inequity in terms of how people are being paid. And so I think that's an encouraging message potentially that if you wanna come into the industry and um, some of the highest earning people we see in our study were women. Um, there were women that tended to you know, prioritize different things than I guess the average woman in our, our study, but um, we certainly did see women at the highest earning levels. Um, and I think people can, the potentially optimistic take is that you can get where you wanna get in the industry, but a lot of people decide, and again, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, when you get to the upper levels, we're talking about a million dollars or more in income. And, you know, if, if advisors decide, hey, you know, I, I want more work-life balance and $250,000 a year is okay with me. Most people would love that. I mean, that's, we're still talking incredibly good career prospects. Um, and so, so I, I just see that as a potentially optimistic kind of takeaway and we'll see what future research uncovers, but hopefully that um, for women who might've been afraid that they would be treated unfairly, this is one piece of evidence that says, well, maybe that's, that's not quite the case. 
I would I would echo the sentiments of of my colleagues and and to the point that um, that Dr. Tharp made, you know, in our in our study of the gender gap specifically, um, the the 19% raw difference that we found that once we controlled for everything, you know, only went down to 1.8%. Um, we were looking at incomes for men of like 200,000 and for women at like 165,000. So we were not looking at like somebody's making 60 grand and somebody else is making 120 grand. We were looking at very high incomes generally. Um, and so, and I also, you know, think with the way that the industry um, is moving in terms of, you know, independent RIAs, we have uh, different ways to work with clients. We have uh, different niches that we develop that that can mean so many things. If you are a firm owner and you want to hire all women or you're a firm owner and you want to hire all men or you're a firm owner and you want to hire a mix of both, um, you can do those things. And there isn't necessarily fear or doesn't need to be fear that people are just going out of their way to you know, try to, um, try to be manipulative, you know, try to mess with people's salaries and stuff like that. Um, I have done a fair amount of consulting work on human capital projects. And even though anecdotally, um, still working with at this point, you know, probably a couple hundred advisors over time, um, I have yet to meet a financial advisor that says, well, I just don't want to hire women or I just, I'm going to pay these people un, uh, differently um, even though they work in the same position. In fact, I tend to find that financial advisors are very, very cautious and very, very aware um, of what they are paying people and trying to create equity uh, because they believe in it, but also because they could get into a lot of trouble. You know, you're not a very big firm and we find out that this is happening at a, you know, in a systematic way that that's probably not good. Um, and so I, I think that there is a lot of care and a lot of thought that goes into the way that we are working with individuals. And there's so much about a firm that can be individualized these days that there really isn't a reason that you can't find a firm for you. And, and again, uh, Derek made a great point and, and Kate made the same one that we can, you can kind of find what you want. You know, if you want to work 50 hours a week and make a whole bunch of money, there's a place for that. If you want to work like 35 and, you know, have a three-day work week, you know, working a couple days at home and there's probably a place for that too. And so it's just how much do you want to make and at what level is enough enough for you, um, which could be half a million, could be a million, could be 250,000, could be 100, could be 60, you know, and it doesn't really matter what that is. There is a place for you within financial planning. And I think that there's, at least within the group, you know, that we were looking at, which they're a little bit nerdy, they're a little bit particular, um, but hey, nerdy, nerdy particular people are great, right? Bunch of them on this call right now. And so um, I just think that that's really promising as, as everybody has said that, that I, I don't think we need to uh, 
it, it's not the discrimination doesn't happen. You know, as a female in this industry, I've experienced it myself. Um, so that is absolutely not the case. But I believe that there are certainly um, opportunities that come from this and a, and a sense of empowerment that comes from this, that if you want that raise, ask for it. You know, if so, you know that you're bringing in more revenue, bring it up. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's, uh, we do, we do know from lots of studies of women uh, and their personalities that we tend to be more agreeable and not ask for raises. Um, and so that could be a contributing factor uh, that we contribute sort of to our own pay gap. Um, and so within financial planning, I'm saying, don't do that. <laughs> you know, you're so great with other people's money. Uh, be great with your own and, and, you know, and ask for what it is that you deserve. Because from what we can see, um, if apples to apples, you should earn what you deserve. And, and nobody seems to have an issue with that. So I think that that's a really, really positive, a really, really positive thing. Well, I'm, I'm going to then, uh, because you sort of brought up a, a great piece of, of wisdom or suggestion for somebody in the field or entering the field. So uh, I'll, I'll give Dr. Tharp and uh, Dr. Mielitz uh, an opportunity as well. Do you have any, for just from this research or from what you observed, maybe inside, outside or in the literature, uh, do you have any suggestions or recommendations you'd act, add to Dr. Lertz, either for those entering the field, those in the field, or for the firm owners who are just trying to, to do a good thing for their, their teams? I would say always, um, always have hope and do 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 know your worth. Know your worth. Uh, do a little bit of uh, verification of what you've done. Do your research to find out, uh, you know, what other people are making in your field. But you know what? If you're taking on additional responsibilities or you're making changes in what you're doing and it's for the better, uh, be brave enough to ask. I remember the first time that I ever asked for a raise, and I went in and my boss looked at me and he said, Kate killing me. What happened? I got that $3 an hour raise. Now this is, you know, earlier in my career, but dang, I got to tell you what, that was a big deal. That was more than 20% of my, of my salary. And so it makes a difference, but it also makes a difference to know why you're asking for it and what you're asking for. And so I think to, to Megan's point, there is hope and uh, we're showing that there is care and, and consideration for that in this field. I think one thing I would add for younger people in the field too, um, or not even necessarily age, but just people who are newer to the field, um, is also to uh, communicate with peers and uh, you know going to things like conferences and having honest conversations, you know, about where people are at and compensation-wise, and reading the benchmarking studies. I mean, all all of that is usually helpful because um, you know sometimes you just don't know. You've been in one firm and you think that's normal. And then you find out, oh, the world might be very different. And um, you could be surprised in either direction that, you know, maybe you've got a really good uh, job where you're at, or maybe you find out that uh, uh, your, your worth might be a little bit higher elsewhere on the market. And so really just having those conversations, I think that's, that's helpful. Um, being open to that, I think as, as financial advisors, we're probably a little less averse to that than some some fields are at least a little bit more open to those money conversations, but um, still a challenge for anybody, but um, that would be one piece of advice. And then um, it kind of gets into a separate topic, but on the firm, uh, firm owner's perspective, 
you know, another challenging, very related topic is uh, things around like, uh, you know, family leave, uh, parental leave benefits. What do you do there? That we know that's a contributor to, um, uh, to the pay gap in terms of most fields. We we haven't. We've tried to look at it a little bit in some preliminary ways with the study I was referencing earlier, but we don't have a great, it's not a great method for actually looking at that specific question. Um, but, you know, as we you know, figure out more, anecdotally, one thing I've heard from um, firms when it comes to actually getting people to take leave is that some firms originally had, you know, a very generous policy that they thought, they felt like it was a very progressive family-oriented policy where people could take essentially unlimited leave um, uh, and as much as they wanted. Um, and, I, and I think it was paid as, as well. But the um, challenge they ran into was that people actually didn't feel comfortable taking leave, kind of like in an open-ended vacation policy because it's they don't know if they'll be perceived as a slacker. You know, if I take six months off and everybody else in the office is taking a few weeks off, does that mean I'm going to be perceived negatively? Um, so actually having you know, a policy that you get you know, three months or whatever the time frame is that a firm you know, feels is, is ideal. I think that's a consideration um, where just having that benefit spelled out and norms kind of developed around that can be helpful to actually getting people to use that benefit. Um, but there's all sorts of nuances and challenges related to that topic in particular, but just, you know, carefully thinking about considerations like that and how that um, ultimately influences opportunities for both men and women in the workplace. Well, I know I'm looking uh, forward to more research on this, so I have high, high expectations for all three of you. Uh, and I want to say thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you Thanks for having us. Thank you.